You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. A lovely day outside, getting ready, I guess, for the uh, calf-called um, anti-fascist rally at uh, 12 o'clock meeting at the uh, eight-hour monument near Trades Hall today. Uh, a couple of pieces of news before we get on to the program. The UWU toll warehouse uh, strikers uh, have won their action. This was announced on Wednesday, the 17th of November, after two days on strike, United Workers' Union members across seven toll districts distribution centres have claimed a victory and will return to work ahead of the busy Christmas shopping period. Members at five sites in Victoria, one in South Australia and one in New South Wales, have today voted, that was on Wednesday, to accept a new offer from toll after negotiations went late in the la- into the night. The new offer includes a 3% pay increase each year for three years, more than 100 new permanent jobs, improved union and training rights, increased redundancy and a guarantee that if workers are moved to a new toll distribution centre, their wages and redundancy provisions will be maintained. The new agreement will cover all new toll warehouses with a minimum starter rate of $25 an hour at each site. There you go. So that's a good thing. There's a lot of uh, rumblings around a uh, Morrison and One Nation um, effort to ram what is being called a racist new bill through the Senate, uh, the ID bill. Uh, It's all around... uh, um, in sh- uh, saying that people who uh, want to vote have to show uh, a uh, license or a bill or um, a Medicare card in order to be allowed to vote, and uh, people are saying that uh, this is going to have a a, re- a real uh, impact on the right to vote in rural and remote Aboriginal communities across the country. Now, apparently, ja- uh, Jackie Lambie is. Uh, a uh, um, part of the uh, uh, vital vote, and uh, she has uh, taken the option of giving people the opportunity to answer yes or no to uh, give her to help inform her her judgment online. This is uh, she used this technique uh, before. Um, uh, you'll remember when. Uh, 
Peter Dutton threatened to deny the vital lifeline of mobile phones to people in immigration detention, uh, which is a fascinating approach. Uh, anyway, uh, I'll leave a link on uh, the podcast page and uh, you can uh, have a look at that situation. The other thing that's uh, on the horizon, is, which is a, a hugely... Uh, overtly political attack on the ABC leading into a federal election, the um, announcement of of yet another coalition-initiated Senate inquiry into the ABC and and SBS. The Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance um, says that this is unwarranted and a further example of this government's unceasing desire to boldly interfere in the elect- editorial independence of the national public broadcasters. Um, and they call it ceaseless, uh, cease, a ceaseless political attack on the independence of the ABC. And, of course, leading into the elections, you'd have to say it was a complete and utter... Um, shameless piece of electioneering strategy. Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Uh, today we're going to hear a little bit from um, the People's Health Hearings, part of the uh, People's Summit um, that was held as part of COP26. I promised I'd play this. This is from the Free West Palpuan campaign. Raki App um, had a, a very interesting speech worth listening to. We're going to get an update from Chris Breen from RAC, a Refugee Action Collective, about what's going on at the Park Hotel uh, with uh, the refugees there and COVID. Uh, we're going to talk to Madeline Mataniello. Uh, probably said that very badly, Martiniello, who is the writer and director of a film that's coming out on November the 25th, Palazzo du Cozzo, which is going to be a fascinating piece of um, uh, social history, especially for people in Melbourne. Uh, We're uh, moving on to uh, This Is The Week That Was, and then we're going to hear from Jill Redwood about from the Environment East Gippsland about the Gliders Day in Court and we're going to finish up with a call to action from uh, Asia, from CAF, uh, Coalition Against Racism and Fascism. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. We'll, uh, I'll give you a tip. Stop the Far Right. Protest on Saturday, November the 20th at 12pm at the 8-hour monument. Join the campaign against racism and fascism in Melbourne to protest the far right trying to march in our streets as part of a national day of anti-fascist action. Stand for social solidarity and let everyone know that Melbourne is an anti-fascist town. This is organised as a COVID-19 safe event. All participants are requested to come fully vaccinated and wearing masks. Stop the far right protest, Saturday, November the 20th at 12pm at the 8-hour monument, Melbourne. For more information, go to www.calf.melbourne. A 3CR supporter. And as I promised, we're going to move on to hear uh, the dulcet tones of uh, Raki App, who is a West Palpuan, free West Palpua campaign person who was given a space to uh, as a uh, uh, to um, give perspective at the um, People's Health Hearings, which was a fascinating piece of um, uh programming as part of the People Summit at uh, COP26, the alternative COP26 effectively, uh, they had uh, testimony 
giving a, a series of uh, sessions where different people from right across the world were giving testimony testimony of the climate um, uh, change effects on their local communities. And this is what uh, Raki had to say. Our next testimony comes from the Asia-Pacific region, from Raki Up. Raki is part of the Free West Papua campaign, which was founded by the independence leader, Benny Wenda, and exists to raise awareness about the genocide and ecocide in West Papua. Their agenda is to create international awareness and to find support for the right to self-determination for West Papua. Raki is a spokesperson for the Free West Papua campaign as a voice for Indigenous Papuans. And uh, Raki, welcome to the People's Health Hearing, and we look forward to hearing uh, your testimony. Yes, but thank you so much um, for the introducing. And first of all, um, really inspired by the previous speakers um, uh, with their stories and insights they gave to me. And I want to thank uh, the People's Health Hearing and all the organizations and partners who organized this uh, because my slogan, my slogan, system change by story change. And I'm going to share, share you my personal story, how I became the person I am today, which is uh, the indigenous climate change activist, uh, freedom fighter, a spokesperson of our campaign. And to kick off my presentation, I want other participants um, to imagine that world's largest gold mine is located uh, nearby your home, your city, or your village. And that this world's largest gold mine is also the world's second largest copper mine. And that because of these activities of this extractive industry, um, the rivers which you and your people have used for many thousands of years for fishing, for water, and for every, you know, daily activity have been polluted, have been poisoned due to um, uh, this uh, extractive industry's uh, toxic waste. And because their activities are making so much profit, you and your family have been forced to go away because they wanted to use your land the land where you have lived, where your house is standing for hundreds, for generations long, to make more profit, to make more mining activities. Because you don't, don't like that, and the villages as well, you go and protest. So this corporation asks an army in a neighboring country to support them, they pay them, and they force all of you with violence to get away from your land. Many people of your village, of your family have been murdered. And in the last 60 years, imagine, not 100 years ago, but the last 60 years, more than one third of your population have been murdered. And an anthropologist who made music, an anthropologist who was a musician as well, who made music about what is happening in these villages against their, his people, was murdered. His family had to forced, was forced to left the country. This sounds like a far away show from, you know, from the history, but unfortunately, it is not a fantasy story. This is the story of the indigenous peoples of West Papua. This is my personal story because the anthropologist and the musician was my father, Arnold Up. And me and my mom, three brothers, had to fled West Papua, and we arrived in the Netherlands where I was just a boy. 
So from a political refugee from West Papua after Indonesian military assassinated my father four months before I was born, I came to the Netherlands and I joined the Dutch army because I thought that was the way to contribute to peace and justice and human rights. How I was young and naive, now I understand the political dynamics behind this militarism, which also is a huge contributor to the climate crisis we see today. So this is my story with Showcase West Papua. For those who doesn't know where West Papua is, it's right above Australia, the island of New Guinea, and it's the western half of the island of New Guinea right there. And I'm going to zoom in. This is the island split in two. The eastern half is the, uh, Papua New Guinea, the independent nation of Papua New Guinea, and the western half is West Papua, which unfortunately is um, um, uh, a province of the Indonesia we know today. So what went wrong? First, we, was, we were a colony of the Netherlands. They prepared the West Papuans to an independent nation. They gave the West Papuans the morning stuff. Like they, we had an army. We had a first government in the early 60s until the United States came in and forced the Dutch to hand over West Papua to the Indonesia we know today. And this was the reality which started from that moment on. After a so-called referendum in 1969, two years before, a U.S. corporate gold mine, the world's largest copper mine, second largest, world largest gold mine, second largest copper mine, located in the heart of West Papua, destroyed the environment and uh, violated a lot of human rights. Not much later, we got BP coming in as well, clearing uh, rainforest. And before that, Obviously, indigenous peoples lived there for more than hundreds, if not thousands of years in balance with nature. And because more and more companies saw this huge rainforest and all these resources, palm oil companies came in to plant what they do, palm oils, um, for all the products here in the West and left behind, you know, this kind of landscapes for the indigenous communities in West Papua. And these are the images which West Papuans have been confronted, not images, the violence committed by, you know, uh, colonial Indonesian forces against indigenous Papuans who lived there for more than 40,000 of years in balance with the nature. So these companies are paying directly to the occupation, to the violence committed by Indonesian military and basically allowing them to do that. And these are the images, unfortunately, I have to see to make you feel how how horrible the situation in West Papua is. My father's story, as I mentioned, is just one of the hundreds of thousands of stories. Confirm NGOs uh, reports more than 500,000 indigenous West Papuans have lost their lives the last 60 years due to Indonesian colonization, supported by the Western governments and their uh, extractive industries. So how is this story linked to the climate crisis? This is why I am here in Glasgow. Because how are we going to stop the climate crisis if we don't know what is happening on the front line? So West Papua is part of the world's largest tropical island, housing one of the unique, uh, most unique lands of marine biodiversity. So the narrative of a lot of uh, environmental organizations are, you know, protecting the forest, protecting animals. Yes, of course, we support that. But if they cared about the lives of indigenous peoples and protected and campaigned for their rights, these animals and trees were still there. It's that simple. We need a new narrative. And that's why I'm here with our campaign. 
Because for us, it's about human lives. It's about our culture disappearing. And we are the best protectors of world's largest tropical island, housing the second slash third largest rainforest in the world. That is what happened on New Guinea. And these are the reports. Don't bother, just let them die about what is happening in West Papua. And why is our story so fundamental for those who want to fight climate change? Indigenous perspective on climate change which showcase West Papua. This is one of the outcomes of the United Nations panel, uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Although indigenous peoples constitute less than 5% of world's population, they safeguarded 80% of world's remaining biodiversity. Thereby, they play an important role in the, the recent biodiversity. At the same time, more than 96% of all deforestation in the world happens on the same indigenous lands due to coal, mining, fossil fuels, and so on, and so on. So these two numbers basically show us the way out, out of the climate crisis. It's the most effective, most just and cheapest climate solution there is. Protect the lives of indigenous peoples and the frontline communities who feel the effect of these extractive industries. So yes, nature.com described the uniqueness of the island of New Guinea. So when we understand what is happening in New Guinea, and what, what happens in Nigeria to the Ogoni people, what's happening in the Amazon and much more communities around the world, we can understand the root causes where the climate crisis started and the structures which have created that. That is basically what the science is, is telling us. And the same United Nations are saying that ensuring the collective rights of indigenous peoples to land, territories and resources, not only for their well-being, but also for addressing some of the most pressing global challenges, such as climate change, and environmental degradation. So the solution is very clear, but at the same time, we see a lot of silence in the global north, in the mainstream media, at environmental organization, bringing forward the wrong narrative. And that's why I believe in the slogan, system change by story change. How is it possible that I have to educate Dutch environmental organizations or even WWF about what is happening on world's largest tropical island. You should know that, and you should facilitate our voice. If you did that 50 years ago, we didn't have a genocide, nor an ecocide in West Papua. So how is it possible that these fundamental organizations, which should be our first ally, are still pitching the wrong story? And politicians here in COP saying that, you know, cheering about, you know, ending deforestation in, by 2030, you know, we, we sh of course we should support that. How are they going to do that without having the best preservers, protectors of these environments, which are the indigenous peoples uh, on, on the table? Without underlining protecting the rights of indigenous peoples is the best solution to protect deforestation. That's exactly what we need to, you know, underline. We should bring that forward, that these are greenwash stocks about what is happening here in COP. So, but we have a way out because the world is silence. We educated the world in the last 10 years under the leadership of His Excellency Benny Wenda. And we've created a lot of momentum by building bridges with different movements, also educating environmental organizations about the indigenous perspective and the role of indigenous peoples in preserving biodiversity and forest. So we built alliances with grassroots movements, with ENGOs, with politicians, with mainstream media, to educate them about what is happening in West Papua. We've lobbied in the Pacific, across the world. We become a member within the Melanesian Spearhead Group. And now we also got um, more than 2 million indigenous West Papuans supporting our cause and our campaign. 
So we both built up a huge momentum, understanding that we live without freedom, having very little resources. We have created this, ch this chains of hope and optimism. So now we got more than 80 countries um, in the world demanding a United Nations human rights facts findings to uh, mission to West Papua, which is a huge diplomatic win for our campaign and our indigenous government in waiting. Uh, because Indonesia is still not allowing them uh, to, to, to do their, you know, observing. But this is what, why we're here in Glasgow. We've launched the Green State Vision this week, fulfilling in the words of the United Nations themselves and, and the world leaders saying that indigenous peoples play an important role. Yes, indeed. So we envision this. You can visit it yourself at greenstatevision.info. And while we have challenged all these world leaders that you cannot lead the way, we know how to manage pristine land, we know how to manage world's largest biodiversity hotspot, and we are willing to lead. We are no victims. We are climate leaders. Hi, I'm Munira from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Fantastic stuff. We're not victims. We're climate uh, warriors. Fantastic. We've got Chris' uh, brain on the line. G'day, Chris. That was pretty great, wasn't it? Hey, it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was uh, uh, Rocky Up, who was speaking at the uh, People's uh, Summit. Uh, it, they were taking testimonies from different people from around the world about uh, how climate change is actually affecting them on the ground. Uh, but we're, come, we're talking to you today. You're, for, you're representing RAC, Refugee Action Collective, and we'd like to know what's going on with the uh, refugees uh, who are being held at the uh, Park Hotel in Carlton. Um, there, <clears throat> there's now uh, 42 refugees being held in the, the Park Hotel in um, Carlton. They've all recovered from uh, COVID now. So at the height, there were 22 out of 46 of the uh, refugees who had uh, COVID-19, which you know rivals some of the... Uh, worst outbreaks in um, aged care is a percentage of people who got uh, COVID. Um, we also don't know. The government never said how many Circo or Border Force staff were infected, but there must have been some. It would have been brought in there by them in the um, first instance. Um, uh, Mohammed Sabrahi, the man who was hospitalised with severe COVID, has unfortunately been returned back to detention. Um, there was uh, almost 12,000 people that signed a petition for him not to be released to detention. Um, St Vincent's Hospital has returned him. There was a, a snap uh, protest to try and stop that, but it wasn't quite enough to do that. Um, the, the outcry, I guess, around COVID has led to growing calls for um, the release of the refugees inside, from medical bodies, from churches, from you know a whole range of um, different groups, and it did during the outbreak, uh, you know, lead to some small changes. So, 11 days into the outbreak, there were finally um, air filters installed in every room. Uh, there was a second nurse employed uh, for the people. Um, but it's you know it's, it's still outrageous that after eight years. Um, 42 people have still been locked up. The one bit of good news, um, in the, the last uh, bit over a week, there
hotel. Um, again, it's, uh, it's, it's not clear as to why these ones are released and why other ones are still there. It's a, a cruel system that leaves people left behind thinking, will they ever be released? Um, and uh, they have been uh, released again just on six months departure pending uh, visas, which makes it very hard for them to rebuild their lives um, I went to go and see them uh, when they were released and they're just put in a temporary hotel where they're given three months' uh, accommodation and two Woolworths vouchers uh, <laughs> for uh, $50 each or $100. Um, and after that, they're on their own. Like it, It's just uh, appalling the conditions they're dumped into. Not only that, uh, they have no transport. They've got no Mikey cards. The nearest Woolworths would be an hour's walk away. Uh, so when I went to see them, I had to, you know, take them shopping to the uh, the Woolworths, and they've been inside for eight years. They've got no idea how long, how much, yeah, how far a hundred dollars right. will go. At, <laughs> how also, how do you use work. the it's, public transport system anyway? Yeah, none of these kind of things, and they are just dumped without any support. Um, they are they are effectively being resettled here. We know the other the Medivac guys, the children and families off Nauru. They're all on the same visas, but they keep being renewed. Um, and the government just needs to admit that they are resettling these people and give them the the support they deserve and need. It's quite bizarre, isn't it? Uh, I mean, it, it uh, doesn't even make sense, except that uh, in some sort of uh, Ongoing uh, international stage, Australia is being is the poster child of uh, draconian refugee policy. Um, I, I think you can only understand uh, the, I guess, the calculated indifference to the lives, both of the COVID outbreak and dumping in the community uh, with absolutely nothing, as part of the deliberate cruelty of offshore processing. Um, it's been intended to break people. It's been intended to deter people from coming. I mean, you know, as we've seen, that doesn't happen. There are still boats who try to that get here that get turned around. Most people trying to get here don't know about the ins and outs of Australian detention policy. Um, but it's, it, it is designed in that way, and this is part of it. I mean, the, the government literally do not care about what happens to these people other than the political pressure that is put on them. Um, and that pressure is certainly growing. I mean, it's, it's you know, we all speculate as to why the people have been released. It's even possible the government has, you know, decided to slowly release people um, but do it in a way they're not seen to back down. I mean, that's entirely speculation on my uh, part... I mean, Dutton himself said the reason that the first Medivac refugees were released because it was cheaper to put them in the community. Well, then surely it's cheaper to put them all in the community. Yeah, yeah, uh, and it's always been cheaper. Yes, it is. It has always, um, always been cheaper. I mean, in any case, the the Refugee Action Collective, the wider refugee movement, is going to keep fighting until they are all out. And the you know over two hundred still offshore um, have a solution as well. Uh, so we've got a, a big protest coming up on Human Rights Day, December the 10th, from uh, 6.30 outside the Park Hotel. If people get along to, um, that would be great. Um, I mean, the, the, the other big issues in the refugee movement at the moment are still permanent visas for people who are resettled here. 
uh, and perhaps the to end the ban on resettling uh, refugees who are stuck in limbo in Indonesia, who are you know in some ways you know as uh, as worse or is worse or just as bad as the situation of those on Manus and Nauru. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and endless uh, years of, I mean, basically the turmoil, the economic as well as uh, political turmoil that's been created by uh, wars and uh, climate change and a whole range of other things have uh, basically left, uh, drained people into these uh, uh, centres, like in uh, holding uh, camps effectively. Actually, the other thing I should add, that with the calls growing, there were 200 um, uh, religious organisations and individuals that signed a message to, that the pet guys should be released. There are now five Labor MPs I know who have called for the release of the um, Medivac refugees and the people who came here by the courts from Manus and Nauru. So you know, I think the, the, the calls to you know end this cruelty... Um, you know, people who come here for medical treatment are still locked up uh, after, you know, two years. It, you know, it's getting towards nine years that they've been locked up in total. Yes. I think those calls are going to continue to grow. Yeah, it's really, really creepy. So, all right, we'll all see each other outside uh, the Park Hotel on December the 10th at 6.30. Yes. Okay, thanks for talking to us this, this morning. Thank, thank you very much for having me on. No worries.
Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Yes, and you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're moving on. We're going to listen, uh, we're going to talk about Palazzo de Cozzo with the writer-director of a film that's coming out next week uh, in All Good Cinemas. G'day Madeline, how are you? Good, thanks Annie. Oh, it's a great film. Thank you. Yeah, must have taken a lot of... I mean, tell tell us first about uh, how you became inspired to make a film to, that documents the life of Franco Cozzo. Well, I guess it was just one of those sort of light bulb moments. I sort of uh, was driving past the huge showroom in Footscray, you know, pretty imposing presence at the end of Barclay Street there, and... Um, I guess I sort of sort of clicked, like I thought, why had no one told his story before? But um, I guess what sort of drew the eye as a filmmaker was, you know, that image of that showroom with all that Baroque furniture in the windows. Um, so I was just sitting there like um, a time capsule almost. And I, I think that's what really did appeal to me, sort of looking at... Um, looking at it through the prism of this historical context um, and trying to understand why Franco Cozzo became this pop culture icon, but also what, what his sort of aesthetic means and how, um, how it related to, I guess, migrant culture more generally in, in Melbourne and in Australia. Yeah, and, and noting your uh, uh, surname, uh, Mataniello, y- your parents are also part of this diaspora? Um, yeah, so my dad's parents, they migrated here. Um, it's in the same year as Franco Cozzo, actually. Um, so they're southern Italian post-war migrants, um, yeah, who came here in the 50s. So obviously there was also that sort of, you know, curiosity on my part, I suppose, to sort of also understand, I guess, my heritage as well. And I sort of had... Um, you know, it, it really helped me form the relationship with Franco because there was that sort of shared cultural understanding, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a really incredibly important element in the film because, uh, I mean, he is a testament to, uh, testimony to uh, all of the uh, multicultural um, elements and f- uh, the migrant fight for uh, a position in a very Anglo, um, you know, closed world, you'd say. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. I mean, like, 50s Australia was a pretty homogenous place. Like, um, of course, we'd have we'd have migrants, you know, for decades before that. But um, I guess the post-war migration boom was the time when there was such an influx that it really... Um, you know, changed the makeup of a, of Australia's population in a in a big way, like it hadn't hadn't happened before, um, and and so of course it's sort of you know the age old fight with every migrant wave and continues even today um, with new migrants, and so yeah, he really I think part of the reason he became who he was and became so well-known is because he really made a splash because he was so different 
to um, what I guess mainstream Australia was used to and his aesthetic, his persona was, um, yeah, really, um, really different and really, I guess, confusing on the one hand, but also engaging for people. Yeah, that's interesting because actually I think uh, previous history, uh, white Australian history is uh, a, a, a very strong lie in the sense that, I mean, even in my family, I mean, I've got it, I mean, in 1880, one of my ancestors is an Italian, right? And uh, yeah. there were people who uh, came from uh, Bavaria, right, who are also in my family line. And it seems to me that Australia was a melting pot, but they, uh, white Australia was a melting pot, but uh, the um, establishment, Anglo establishment, just had a very uh, sort of draconian tight reign. And what seems to come out of this Franco Cozzo picture is that the Italian onslaught, and, you know, there were other uh, nationalities as well was so strong that uh, and he stood on TV he was such a masterful showman uh, that it, despite his faltering English he refused to be suppressed yeah no absolutely um, I think that that's the, the fact that he you know spoke in his ads in Italian, in Italian. and also in Greek like even today <laughs> I think that would be kind of bizarre, you know? Like, I think we, we sort of take it for granted in Melbourne because, you know, everyone knows the ads and knows he speaks in Italian, but it was a big deal to yeah. go on, yeah, television in, and speak in another language and, like you said, not, not be ashamed of it and not hide and not not be ashamed of his poor English skills. Like, you know, he goes on the Don Lane show and he he actually makes fun of his own, you know, yeah. poor English. Um, and... That it's fantastic. Let, yeah, he's he's quite self-aware in terms of that um, that part of his, I guess, strategy. Persona. Like he actually, yeah, he he turns it around, and it actually becomes an advantage for him to, you know, um, have this sort of eccentric way of pronouncing, you know, Footscray and um, Brunswick, and so. It, it actually ends up working for him in this quite, I guess, at a time when, you know, Australia was was still pretty prejudiced towards European. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit like Wogs at Work, isn't it? It's owning yeah. owning yeah. Um, the... Uh, uh, disparity you know the, the you know the uh, insult yeah and so they they come after franco yeah. i feel like he paved the way for that second generation of you know european migrants to start sort of looking back at their parents and you know they that second generation have like a different identity because they've grown up in australia but they've been raised by you know um people who've come from other cultures and they can start to sort of make fun of um, but also, yeah, like you said, own own that um, Italian or Greek or Macedonian um, background in a, in a different way. It's also fascinating too, of course, that I mean, they're all uh, he's from southern Italy uh, and from Sicilia, uh, uh, Sicily. Yes. So I mean, if you have, I mean, I'm uh, Australian Anglo. I mean, you know. No, I'm more complicated than that. But the point is, I'm not from Italy. But if you go to Italy, you understand that there's a whole range of political 
and uh, cultural and uh, almost internally racist attitudes to different regions, right? That'd be fair to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, there's a big divide between the north and the south. Yeah, um, and the south is historically the more, um, I guess, working class peasant mm. um, poor background and poor, and also and exploited. Um, Exploited by the North for their labor, and also, um, also like there's a racial kind of um, prejudice there because the the South is. I think Berlusconi was said to say that the below Rome is like um, almost part of Africa. Like (laughs) there's there's this like quite racist um, perception of the South too. Even yeah just within Italy itself. So I suppose when people were relocating to Australia and then having a love affair with the Baroque uh, ornate furniture uh, once they came to Australia, this would have been quite a uh, a dream come true. That's what he was tapping into, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, like the people who became his customers in his heyday um, were, you know, all the new migrants, basically. And so, you know, they, most of them, wouldn't wouldn't have been able to buy this furniture at home. Um, And so they've they've come to a new country and they have, you know, worked really hard and put, put money aside slowly. And, you know, one of the things a lot of them decide they want to spend their money on was, you know, Franco Cozzo furniture. And it really, I guess, um, you know, on the one hand, it was a, a, a sign to them, I guess, of having, you know, achieved what they had come to this country for, which is, you know, being able to set up a home in the image that they wanted it to be. And, like, I don't want to make it seem like it was just, like, a materialistic no, goal. no, I, I was going to it say, it's awesome. more, wasn't it? It was yeah. much more. It's a lot deeper than that. It's more, I think, about creating a, a space that, you know, has, you know... Um, uh, like it, a, it's the loneliness, too, and the loss of culture, I guess, coming here. I mean... Well, exactly. So that's like a connection to home for them as well. Um and I mean, you know, it's been well documented, but you know, for migrants, it's always, you know, there's always one one foot back home and one foot in the new culture. So, and then you become a little bit lost, don't you? Yes. So neither nor, think, yeah. What is it? Uh, yeah. Whatever yeah, that is, living in that in between. Yeah. Um, uh, you must have uh, done a lot of research. I mean, yes, you've got personal history, but uh, one there's the. Uh, actual uh, documenting of his life, his individual life, but uh, there must have been broader uh, things that you were looking into as well. I mean, it's a very solid film, I'd have to say. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, um, of course, there's that migration history, but I was also really interested in the history of TV in Australia um, because... He actually came to Australia in 1956, which is the year that television also arrived. Um, And so his sort of journey is in parallel with, you know, TV and which is now, you know, obviously on the decline and changing. Um, But that mainstream broadcast TV was really what allowed him to 
become so well known. And so, yeah, I was quite interested in why and how um, he sort of managed to um, use that brand new medium because he also, like, um, he started the first non-English speaking TV show. In the Australia. Variety Show. I know. I didn't yeah. even know that. That was fascinating. Yeah, which is pretty amazing. Like he um, he produced it and it was a um, variety show with Italian, young Italian migrants singing Italian songs. And once again, you know, SBS didn't exist at this time. There was no sort of, quote, ethnic programming. He just, you know, realised that, he he loved music, but I think it was also a another advertising campaign for him. And he had this half-hour show on for three years on Channel Zero, which became Channel 10. Um, yeah, and it was all, all in Italian. And so once again, you know, people at home, mainstream Anglo-Australia would have been able to turn on the TV and it would have been there playing. And it was a window into another culture that hadn't been in the mainstream media before. Yeah, yeah, the fantastic uh, pieces of uh, choices in your um, in your pieces of footage, archival footage, but also the beautiful links, the music. The music's great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I um, had a lot of fun. Had a lot of fun with the music. It's, um, there's a wide, wide variety in there, but I guess I just wanted it to reflect I guess the, um, uh, I guess the energy of Franco and his story, and um, obviously music is quite related to him as well because he started that music show. But then he's also been the um, the focus of a couple of songs as well. Like there was a song written um, in the eighties about him which actually did really well and became really well-known. And we've got the um, the writer of the song, Tony Curcio, um, in the film sort of reflecting on um, that that journey for him writing that song. And then, you know, there's this, even bands today, there's a young band called Franco Grosso. Um, <laughs> and there's a great song by a band called The Argeteers called I Want to Die in a Franco Cozzo Bed. So, oh, yeah, fantastic. I wish I'd got that for the show. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So he's attracted like a lot of, um, a lot of musical, uh, I guess, interpretation too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I love the uh, device of going to people's places uh, like a set, a TV set uh, of people's houses where they're in love with that furniture and they've created a whole environment. That was such a great idea because I've yeah, always wondered something... how could you do it, you know, like, uh, you know, where does it fit? Yeah, yeah, no, or now now you know how people incorporate it into their homes. But yeah, yeah. I guess that was something I wanted to do from the very beginning. Like that was part of my original idea to not not just make it about Franco but to broaden it out and to sort of um yeah, have a have a look into people's homes because um I think, you know, like I said, it's not just the material purchase, it also has a lot more um, meaning to the people who own it, and so I wanted to hear their their stories too. Um, yeah, but I I loved going into the homes. That was one of my favourite parts. Oh, it's fantastic! Um, you wrote it, so you you must have uh, really. And how long did it take you to make this film? 
Because um, it's a challenge, I would have thought. Yes, all I think all film, all filmmaking is a challenge, um, and you know, documentaries notoriously take a long time to make because you're working in the real world with real people. But um, this one was about four years all up from the day I walked into Franco's store and pitched the idea to him, and um, to I guess you know. That last day in the edit suite, so quite a long time. <laughs> yeah, quite a long time. But also, th- you weren't the only person who thought it was a good idea. Um, there's quite a few people, who, uh, uh, Screen Australia, Film Victoria, Shamil Films, the ABC, everybody was on your side. They really wanted to hear about Franco Cozzo. Yeah, I think, you know, it took a couple of years to um, raise the money to make the film, but I think, yeah, at the end of the day... You know, um, people un- understood that this was a, like a story that you know wasn't just a hyper local story. It had you know more universal themes that would appeal to people beyond um, Melbourne and you know sort of stand on its own as a as a story about you know a pretty bold character who um, had a pretty unique position. In, Australian history, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's it's uh, opening next week and it's going to be at the Nova uh, Yarraville Sun uh, Palace Pen- Pentridge. I always, uh, the whole idea of a cinema at Pentridge is so funny. Um, Lido uh, Hawthorne Classic, Elstonwick uh, and Cameo Belgrave. So you can go and go and see it and enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks for talking to me, Madeline. Oh, thank you so much, Annie. It's been lovely. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when, as the cold dust settles into the post-COP26 atmosphere, the post-COP that atmosphere, we can breathe, although I recommend not too deeply, breathe a sigh of relief that the public purse will not be bereft, robbing us of the services the community demands. As Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle informed us, the public purse would be empty if it were not for coal. And thankfully, we can see coal, 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 old King Coal, stretching into whatever future there is for planet Earth. Supported by the caring fossil corporates who applauded the decision not to phase out coal. This gives us the certainty that we can transform economically from coal to coal. And environmentally? Certainly. This gives us the certainty we can transform from coal to coal in a positive economic environment. And to emphasise their commitment to this transition, Barnacle and Big Supremo scuttled them more less than a.k.a. Scummo, assured us a government-financed coal-fired power station was still on the table, as they say. Uh, But how does that conform with phasing down coal? Are you stupid or, or like, you know, something? Where, Where do you think we get coal from? Down. It's not up. It's like down, under the ground. So, like, what better way to phase down? 
Barnick or did admit he does not support the final COP26 declaration. Uh, but aren't you part of the coalition government which did sign it? You've got to pronounce it like properly. It's the coalition government. As true blue was, he sensibly therefore supported the change from phase out coal to phase down, from out to down, leaving planet Earth down and out. But in case we're a bit worried about extracting fossils as far as the planet can stretch, be reassured. Carbon capture and storage, burying your head in the sand, is the technological panacea. Dig it up and put it back. Expressed beautifully by Santosas, the prophet supremo, Kevin, hope you're gullible. Direct quote, no embellishment. True Blawazi has the capacity to be a carbon storage superpower due to its capacity to store CO2. I can feel our chest swelling already, listener. Doesn't it make us so proud? True Blawazi, a superpower. A superpower repository for the world's waste. Kevin, we put to Kevin, if it's important that we store the CO2 underground and it's underground before we dig it up, why not just leave it underground and not dig it up in the first place and prevent the government providing essential services like train killers and police and corporate welfare? Didn't you listen to the wise words Barnacle had us say? Oh, sorry for being so stupid, Kevin. A wise Kevin putting a stupid Kevin in his place. No, no, you're right. We've always had enormous respect for Barnacle's wisdom. Seriously, listen, a Barnacle and wisdom are so light years apart, he probably wasn't even born with a wisdom tooth. No consolation, unfortunately, as he oversees the destruction of life and the planet and sees that as insignificant compared to the profits of the great resource giants. Indeed, we'll need more and more coal extraction to keep our essential services going. Essential services like trained killing. As the Minister for Trained Killing and Being Offensive, Constable Peter Duffer, says, we must increase our trained killer expenditure to $50 billion a year which is a hell of a lot of coal, and a hell of a lot of train killing for that matter, backed up by former caring business class party functionary and later Senator Arthur Sins of Dunnas, who was rewarded for his sins with Ambassador to Washington, who said our nuclear submarines and the AUKUS offensive arrangement were about projecting power north to the Indo-Pacific region to maintain peace. Ah, yes, war is peace. Peace can't be real peace unless there's a war so we can have that peace. And Socialist Party backbencher Peter Killall, well, obviously Socialist Party, he would have attacked the whole idea of going nuclear and spending a fortune on train killing. Except, he said, we should immediately buy or lease nuclear submarines off the current production lines because the long lead time leaves True Blue Aussie's defence for these coming decades dangerously vulnerable at a time of increasing regional volatility. Volatility, Kimmy. Oh, yes, I forgot the bloody Chinese. Another principled socialist position. Pete consolidated our appreciation of his wisdom after former Socialist Party Big Supremo and former world's worst, worst, uh, best treasurer Paul said Taiwan was none of our business and we should jettison the very sensible plan to attack China. Important speech today by former dear leader and grand appeaser Comrade Keating where he talks down Troubler Aussie yet again. Pete was at his incisive best. 
isn't he a you know like like you know deep like you know thinker amid all this wisdom from pete and arthur and peter wonder if they've considered we could save a lot of money and maintain the peace by not spending one cent on any submarines there's a hundred billion plus that coal won't have to raise but let's spare a thought for the poor editor of the New York Times, for even a hundred billion won't buy peace or freedom for her or him facing a hundred and seventy-five years solitary confinement in a maximum security cell, or maybe even the death penalty for that most heinous of criminal offences, exposing U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the U.N. of the world war crimes. This week, exposing a cover-up of a 2019 airstrike in Syria that killed at least 64 women and children, ordered by a classified American special operations unit tasked with ground operations in Syria. Following the expose, U.S. of Central Command acknowledged the slaughter had happened and said it was justified. See, the real crime is exposing U.S. of war crimes, and U.S. of war crimes are not war crimes because the good guys can do no wrong and only react to the crimes of the bad guys, like these at least 64 women and children. And so, based on the Julian Assange precedent, the editor of the New York Times must face 175 years and all the death penalty because hypocrisy would be anathema to the good guys. Keeping up this cheery note, with increasing death and painful disease among workers dealing with silica dust, the state government has announced caring engineered stone employers must be licensed to protect their lazy avaricious workers. From last week, preferably to protect workers immediately. Well, in fact, by this time next year. Uh, but that's another whole year for workers to suffer. Look, obviously, we have to give caring employers time to adjust to the new rules. Uh, what's there to adjust to? Make it safe, as they should in the first place. We all know caring employers need certainty, and this will make it safe in 12 months. But, but the, the only certainty is that more workers will suffer. Therefore, in the meantime, we recommend for workers to not breathe while at work. Uh, but, but many are not breathing because of work. Listen, uh, another case of don't hold your breath and don't hold our breath waiting for wages to catch up with inflation as evil unions reckon wages must rise by at least 3% to match the cost of living. Selfish, selfish, evil unions who expect an increase without an increase in productivity. As caring employers sensibly point out, we can't possibly have wage rises without workers being more productive. There are 24 hours in a day, so eradicating the unproductive practice of going home at night would be a good start. Speaking of the costs of the cost of living, ad for supermarket giant kills your budget, assuring us we can't enjoy Christmas without handing it a fortune, says, value the true blue Aussie way, which must be the value equivalent of Scummo's can-do capitalism the true blue Aussie way, solving the very climate problem it has created. Doubtless the value is they value people falling for such crap. 
But real value for money when you commission one of the big four world accounting behemoths to advise you, like the New South Wales Treasury, which wants to corporatise the state's rail assets and hired KPMG to provide it with ammunition. KPMG advising wisely the move would save the public purse $15 billion a year. And then the former head of transport for New South Wales, bloke called Rod Staples, commissioned KPMG to show the move was not viable. And KPMG advised wisely the move would leave the budget $10 billion worse off. For his trouble, Staples was dismissed without reason. So there we have it. KPMG says they're $15 billion better off by being $10 billion worse off. Or the right hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, or does, but what's it matter when there's a quid in it? The good news is Scummo and the team spend billions every year getting all that reliable advice from these behemoths rather than waste money on public servants who used to provide that information. So that's why all their economic assurances and predictions are so reliable. They're told what they want to hear. By the way, on his the answer to climate change, if there is such a thing, is can do capitalism the true blue Aussie way comment, Scummo added, not don't do governments. Got a feeling he didn't think that last bit through too well or, or he has made a monumental admission. Report on the death of author Wilbur Smith in South Africa said he was a big game hunter and then a little later, as a conservationist... And, um, Oh, no comment. And also, without comment, complaining about the fees charged by the privatised monopoly airports, Supremo of our also privatised airline that used to be our airline, Alan Joystick, attacked the abuse of market power. Alan Joystick? Then again, finally, Lord Rupert of Wapping told his News Very Limited annual general meeting that Facebook and Google need significant reform because they censor and silence conservative voices. Lord Rupert. Well, Lord Rupert, we don't. Look, we've just quoted you. Good morning. G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Jill Redwood on the line. G'day Jill, how are you? Yeah, good Good morning Annie. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you're of course from uh, Environment East Gippsland and on Thursday uh, this week uh, the Victorian Supreme Court ordered that state logging agency Vic Forests halt logging in 27 areas of forest and this has been because of court action to save the gliders. Can you give us listeners some understanding of what's going on? Yes, that was a really good ruling. Um, It's only an injunction and we've got to argue the main case yet, but um, these 27 stands of forest that they'd planned to clear fell, we we had no option really but to take legal action to halt the logging there um, while we take them to court because we believe there's um, blatant breaches going on of um, protection laws for our threatened wildlife. And in this case, it was the greater gliders and the yellow-bellied gliders that um, this was prime habitat. And it was areas that hadn't burnt a lot of these areas. And it, these remaining areas are like refuges for these critically endangered 
animals now. In East Gippsland, there's been a, a 50% decline in the greater gliders population just in the last 20 years. And then we've had the bushfires on top of that. So they're, they're in um, dire straits. So, yeah, Vic Forests are actually facing 10 court cases at the moment, um, and there's been six or seven in the past. They just don't seem to care about the law, or they seem to have a habit of interpreting it to suit commercial needs rather than um, environmental protections. So um, the yellow belly gliders are also becoming threatened. The greater gliders are seriously threatened. And after 50 years of clear felling, um, it's taken its toll on, on so many forest habitats, and the older forests in particular, the old forest structures um, and the species that have evolved with them, um, the populations are crashing. There's like quolls and the owls. So, so yes, that's why we're having to go to court and try and um, force the government to force its own logging agency to abide by the rules. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Um, that uh, the uh, it was it was a huge win to have the Victorian government announce last year, or, or when, or maybe it was the year before. It was before the lockdown, so it must have been two years ago that there was going to be a, a cessation of uh, old growth forests logging in two thousand and thirty. Um, which, uh, but of course, then you looked into it more carefully, and there's so many ways for the uh, government as uh, Vic Forest to sidestep what appears to be a hard and fast rule. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, no, that wasn't um, much of a win at all. It was, no. It was just window dressing. It's business as usual. There's so little left. Another 10 years will just be a wipeout, basically. And when you've got that climate change and mega fires now, um, to continue logging in under any scenario is just so wrong. In, in native forests, we've got enough plantations to meet all of our timber needs. Um, but what Vic Forests have been doing, like we we um, carried out a major case against Vic Forest in 2009-10, which was sort of the the landmark court case that allowed a lot of other groups to step in and, and sue them as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that court case found that Vic Forests were logging without looking. So even though they said, uh. oh, no, we, we look for threatened species, they weren't even surveying these areas first. So they were forced to survey areas. Um, now they've interpreted that to only survey those they think they've got the money for. So they're not surveying all areas. And then they're surveyed in such a way that, you know, they don't find everything. Or they have a trigger point for protection, which is almost mythical numbers that, you know, are very rarely found. So they only survey 20% of an area along a track or something rather than going in and really doing a decent job. Um, or they, they hire people to do that. So there is... And, and the logging of old growth, they've just redefined the um, the way they, you know, determine what old growth yeah, is. Yeah, I was going to say, they did that in uh, Western Australia. Old growth is no longer... If there's one sawn tree in a, a strand of Jarrah over in... This is how they had defined it. It's no longer can be called pristine. Therefore, not old growth. Mm, yes, yes, similar here. 
<laughs> right, they're using that kind of tactic. I was going to say that uh, Vic Forest, for example, is an agency, but do, do they lease out to local loggers? Is that what's going on? Well, they're a government-owned entity. They're semi-corporatised. They are Victoria's logging monopoly. Yeah. Um, but, yes, they engage contractors to cut the forests down. So, yeah, the contractors have their bulldozers and chainsaws yeah. and, um, yeah, that's what happens. And so it's a very up close and personal in a local area? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, and living in a very... Um, <laughs> oh, well, it's only a very small part of the economy out here, but they're quite, what would you say, muscle-bound as, as, as far as political influence goes. So... Um, Yes, there is a very close, cosy relationship and anyone who speaks out against logging, well, you'd better be ready for it. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's been a long fight and uh, using this tactic of the law is about slowing things down, isn't it? It hopefully not only will slow things down, yes, it will certainly do that, we hope, um, as this has, and it, it probably will be heard this case or end of next year, maybe. Mm. It takes a long time for any legal case to go through the, all the processes. Um, but meanwhile, we're hoping to get injunctions on a lot of these areas where they're planning to log meanwhile. That's why this, um, this ruling that was handed down on Thursday, which, as I said, was only a temporary injunction. We got to fight for the interlocutory injunction um, early December um, next month. So we'll just see how things go there. But um, we've just had the Code of Forest Practice rewritten too, and that may happen again. So that's another tactic that the government are using. I mean, Dan Andrews is part of this as well, and the ministers, which is very, very disappointing. Um, you know, he's been good with a lot of things and social issues, but on environment, uh, it's just appalling. So the code was changed to weaken it but our barrister has still found um, clauses in there which they should be following, but they're, but they're not. So that, they were the arguments um, we were using. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's like uh, uh, you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, dare I say they are acting like a bunch of bullies. Yeah, yeah, and hooligans and vandals, you know. <laughs> yeah, and and also that uh, the natural environment is there for their pleasure. Yes, yes, they assume that it's their right to abuse it and exploit it, and um, come up with all the usual things like it all grows back. Well, it doesn't actually. Once you clear fell a forest, it's much worse than a bushfire's impact, and it only comes back as an industrial tree crop, perfectly suited for the wood chip industry. Yes. Um, uh, and uh, on one level, you'd think uh, education could p perhaps do something about this understanding. But, uh, and, you know, then they'd say things like jobs. And so when I was living up in that area, um, they changed the rules about uh, uh, digging roads, you know, and mending the roads, and they contracted it out to uh, a big companies that brought in their own labour hire crews, and so the whole economy of the uh, people up there, uh, the men lost their road. It was mainly men lost their ro uh, their seasonal road mending jobs, but 
which were much more significant than any jobs that they think come out of forestry, uh, uh, you know, cutting down the uh, native forest. Yes, and um, that's what we've been trying to point out for years and years. It is, is a to- I think it's less than 1% of the regional um, regional jobs now involved with logging industry, and most of it goes to either wood chips um, across, the, across the border in Eden or down, down to Maryvale. Um, there's not that much that gets turned into sawn timber anymore. There's 85% of all of our getting up to 90% of all of our um, timber needs comes from plantations. It's mostly pine-based. So it's political and ideological. Some Mm. very strong power groupings. Have you got an impression of the power groupings that are insisting on this? Well, the union seems to have a lot to do with it. Ah, that's interesting. Uh, Yes. Yeah, the um, CFMEU, the efforts within the CFMEU, the foresters, construction, forestry, mining, um, seem to have a lot of sway with the government. I don't know they, I, don't, I don't know why or whatever, but they seem to have them by the short and curlies and what they demand, they get. So, And also we have to wonder about, of course, political donations, which is what drives a lot of government decisions these days. But um, we just have to keep at it that we're... It is a dirty game. Um, I wish we lived. I wish I could um, believe in a democracy, but it's, it's looking worse and worse the, the further we go. All right, the fight's on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the fight's on. Thanks for updating us on this, and we'll all keep our eyes and ears open regarding right. it. All right. Thanks again, Annie. Thank you. Bye. Stop the far right. Protest on Saturday, November the twentieth at twelve pm at the Eight Hour Monument. Join the campaign against racism and fascism in Melbourne to protest the far right trying to march in our streets as part of a national day of anti-fascist action. Stand for social solidarity and let everyone know that Melbourne is an anti-fascist town. This is organised as a COVID-19 safe event. All participants are requested to come fully vaccinated and wearing masks. Stop the far right protest, Saturday, November the 20th at 12pm at the 8-hour monument, Melbourne. For more information, go to www.calf.melbourne. A 3CR supporter.
I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Aisha on the line. Aisha on the line. She's from CAF, Coalition Against a Race, Racism and Fascism. G'day, Aisha. How are you? I'm doing how are you? I'm good. Um, I'd like you to tell my listeners about what's going to be happening today and why it's happening. Yeah, so um, all across Australia, actually, there's um, a lot of protest plans. So the far right are going to be protesting um, under a worldwide rally for freedom, where they're yeah, fighting for their freedom, you know, like... Um, I mean, a lot of it is kind of like against the, the bill, against mandates, against... I know. I mean, what really gets me on my goat, this business about freedom, they don't mind insecure work, they don't mind unsafe workplaces, they don't mind a whole range of things, but, you know, freedom to uh, make other members of the public sick, oh, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, 100%. Like, that's kind of what it's about. It's very, very, like, individualistic, and I think it's quite anti-human. Um, these politics, yeah, like they're not, you know, fighting for the freedom of the refugees locked up in the Park Hotel or whatever. Yeah. Fighting for, yeah, their freedom to um, get a coffee at the expense of like a barista who might get, you know, COVID from that or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, they've called all these rallies, so it's under the banner of this like worldwide rally for freedom. And yeah, the campaign against racism and fascism all over the country, we've, um, we've called kind of, yeah, counter demonstrations. So these will be, um, I mean, the one in Melbourne happening is called, yeah, like Stop the Far Right in Melbourne and will be, um, you know, politically challenging their ideas. So we're avoiding, of course, like physical confrontation, but we do want to, you know, like publicise an opposition to this politics. We want to publicise um, the politics of social solidarity and, you know, like public health and what's actually kind of got us through the pandemic and, you know, like left-wing progressive politics. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it seems important to me that this should happen. Uh, the uh, uh, rabble that's been appearing on Parliament steps, I mean, you know, they're allowed to appear on Parliament steps, but uh, they're becoming uh, emboldened, uh, creating props and uh, basically spreading a whole range of li- lying statements on their banners, which is quite um, disturbing, I'd have to say. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think you're right to call it a bit of, like, a bit of a rabble. Like, I think it is really coherent around, like, um, far-right demands. And there is, like, a pretty, I think, yeah, like, distinct kind of far-right leadership there. But there is that kind of rabble as well. You've got, like, you know, those kind of conspiracy theorists and stuff, you know, like, of course, like, anti-vaxxers and all that that are, like, propagating some of these really outrageous ideas. And I think over the weeks, of course, um, I mean, over the months since the pandemic has begun, it's, like, a lot of us have been, um, I mean, doing our best to keep each other safe, and we haven't had the opportunity to to counter these ideas, um, yeah, publicly. And especially in the last few weeks, um, since the rallies outside the CFMU in September, you know, yeah, of course, like the confidence has um, been building and it's become more emboldened. And you know, um, when the far right becomes confident, that's not really good for anyone. Well, they've uh, now recently announced that. Uh... Um, it, well, basically coming out, uh, the, the core uh, in, in political aims uh, are uh, 
they've now coalesced with Clive Palmer and his so-called Australia Party. So quite clearly there are people in this group who are politically ambitious and are being backed by certain uh, money interests. Yeah, I mean, it is quite funny in a sense because, you know, like they claim to be extremely anti-state and anti-establishment, um, but really it's just kind of like anti, like the Labour Party. Um, you know, they have all these Liberal Party speakers. Yeah, like Midnight Democracy has now like an electoral tie to, yeah, like Clive Palmer's United Australia Party. You know, like they're, um, all of them have shown kind of in numbers at the recent demonstrations. Um, as well, so you know, if you've seen pictures and videos, you've seen heaps of yeah, like um, United Australia Party, like you know, like banners and posters and stuff like that. So, yeah, expensive paraphernalia. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think they're investing quite a bit into this movement, and because like the hard right, um, you know, can also coalesce around this and can also um, grow out of this movement, um, just as the far right is doing. Anyway, people are going to go on the streets hopefully at uh, 12 uh, this afternoon, uh, 12 noon, and uh, you're all meeting uh, at the eight hour monument just across the road from the trade hall, right? What? Yeah, so, yeah go sorry. on. Yeah, eight hour monument is 12 shops. People should really, really try to be on time. Like, you know, um, we want a, a safe but, you know, dynamic um, and mobile demonstration. So it's important for people to, yeah, be on time. What are you expecting to happen? Um, I mean, it is a bit, like, um, hard to predict, of course. So I know, like, we're, we want, you know, like, as many numbers as we can. Um, but we do have, like, um, like, we're intending to march, like, I mean, away <laughs> from, like, the, the fascists and the far right and stuff. Um, you know, like, we want to be, yeah, like, safe and moving. Um, so, yeah, we have a really good, you know, strong marshalling team. We're encouraging people to come, you know, like, vaccinated and wearing masks. Um, you know, like, not looking up in too much left-wing paraphernalia and stuff so as to not make yourself, um, like, a target on trains or on your way in. But, yeah, we want to a safe and lively and energetic demonstration where we loudly counter you know, the politics of the far right and, you know, posit progressive politics um, and left-wing politics and stand up against fascism. Do you expect to have... Are you going to have speakers? Yes. Um, we will have speakers. We have quite a few lined up. So we have um, Kim Bullymore. She's like an Indigenous Australian um, and she's going to be speaking... We also have um, Jeremy Small. He's going to be speaking on behalf of... Um, Always a good draw card. Jerem's a great speaker. No, he really is. Um, we also have, like, um, Zane, he's speaking um, as well. So, yeah, representatives of both um, Socialist Alternative and Socialist um, Alliance will be speaking. But yeah, we've got, like, um, Patty Lewis as well and um, Sam Castro. Oh, great. Okay. Well, um, hopefully uh, uh, everyone will be there, which uh, from the progressive side of politics to uh, make sure that uh, the right don't get all, it all their own way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, it's time to stand up for, you know, the politics that is 
So we believe it is that we think can actually continue to pull up through this pandemic. One where of social solidarity, where we stand up for public health, where we, um, you know, fight for the left and against the kind of individualistic um, politics of the the far right that is really quite um, dangerous to us all. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Aisha. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, that's the end of the show this morning. Uh, we've uh, had a pretty good time today. Uh, we've, we heard from Rucky Up about West Papuan uh, fight for uh, uh, a hearing for Indigenous people's right to uh, curate our planet. Uh, Chris Breen gave us an update on Park Hotel and the uh, refugees that are there. Uh, Madeleine Mataniello told us about her wonderful film Palazzo di Corso uh, and uh, that's going to be opening uh, next week uh, at All Good uh, Alternative Cinemas. Um, this is the week that was. Jill Redwood gave us an idea of the uh, uh, the um, victory or the injunction um, that came out of uh, the Gliders' day in court uh, for our uh, old-growth forests in Victoria. And Aisha gave us a rundown on the uh, meeting that's going to happen today in the streets, 12 noon at the eight-hour uh, monument in uh, direct opposition to the far right's uh, rabble-raisers that are sitting on uh, Parliament House steps. Uh, Coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents, and uh, we will go out with, I think I'd better find a a longer song, because uh, I've actually finished with a little bit of time. I go out of my way to find uh, quite... um, Oh, here we go. This looks good. It's called Modern Slaves.
trying to teach them this ain't the life. Education is the key. Can't have it handed to you. You gotta give back. You know, systems got your work and you gotta rage against the machine. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.